I believe that they are the future of emergency medicine. What did you think was going to happen to you, fool? We don't worry about the patients who are admitted. We worry about the patients who go home. They're going to jump off a bridge or something. Hey, Rick Bicotta, Greg Henry, coming to you September Risk Management Monthly. Greg, we are in a special location doing something very special as well. Yeah, but we're adults, <laughs> and because the Supreme Court said we can do it, but we're not talking about it here on this show. One thing we are doing is looking out your window from your magnificent suite here at Bally's, and we can see the construction of that new uh, what is that? A hundred uh, store or no, fifty story? They're building Ferris a wheel? fifty story Ferris wheel. Extraordinary. Um, it's going to be the largest one, obviously, in the world. And uh, I can see it out the window. I can see the progress that they're doing it. But the more fundamental question is, what the heck are we doing at Bally's Hotel? I'll tell you what we're doing. Something which is actually <laughs> fairly worthwhile. We're running the famous physician assistant boot camp. This is well, for not the, just for physician assistants. Of course right. not. We've got nurse practitioners, PAs. We've got docs who are now going back into emergency medicine. Uh, we have a, a really eclectic group of people. Today I spoke to one guy who'd been a thoracic surgeon for 32 years, said he'd tired of it, didn't want to do it. And he's now going to be doing some uh, volunteer work at clinics and thought he'd learn a lot from us. Yeah, this is uh, the emergency medicine boot camp course. This is our third presentation. We did one a year ago in here in Las Vegas, and uh, we had 700 people. Uh, we had one in December. We had 1,100, and we had one now in, in um, whatever month this is. We have another 700. And I'm not bragging. I'm, what I'm su suggesting is there's an extraordinary need for education <coughs> by for. PAs, NPs, and primary care doctors in emergency medicine. We, I think we've brought this up before. In the United States, the majority, not all, emergency medicine is pro provided by board-certified emergency physicians who have taken a residency, passed the test, and have credentials. However, the nurse practitioners and the PAs are all getting on-the-job training, which we said 25 years ago or 30 years ago, that's really not the way to learn emergency medicine. Exactly. It's a, it's a little dangerous <laughs> to learn that way. And so this course is the first one that I know of that in basically three and a half days, we're covering you know, probably 87.5% of everything that walks in the door. And um, these people are just hungry for this education. They're soaking it up. And it's interesting that in the... Uh uh, question and answer periods, which we have each morning and each afternoon, about a third of the questions are related to risk management questions. And as we've pointed out on this show many times, uh, this relationship in supervision f is uncomfortable not only on the doctor side, but on the mid-level side. And there were a lot of questions and problems brought up. Let me point out one. I had a young woman come up to me and say, how do I document this? I, have, I work with several doctors. Some will come in and see anything I want. I have others who dismiss me and say, I won't even go in and see that case. They say right. that to her face. And I said, uh, I, I don't understand that. And she said, no. They say, we're busy. You should be able to handle that. 
Uh, she needs to talk to the director. That's for sure. Yeah, one of them was the director. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, see, this is the problem. But I think that there are behaviors out there with regard to these people which are dangerous. You know, like any healthcare provider, if they think they're in over their head, they are over their head, and they probably deserve, and the patient certainly deserves, to be properly seen. Well, I'm more concerned when they don't think they're over their head. And there's these subtle cases, that the a needle in the haystack cases, the headache patient, the back pain patient. You know, those kind of cases can fool you. Um, but let's talk a little bit more generically. You know, um, one of the hardest things at this course has been to determine what to call these people. You know, the, the PAs don't want to be called PAs anymore. They want to be called physician associates. But that's a, that, the ad- initials there are the same, yes. PA. And the nurse practitioners, they don't want to be called nurse practitioners. They want to be called doctors now. And everybody doesn't like being called providers. So I have no idea what to call these people collectively when they're all three are in the room, doctors, PAs, and then Ps. Well, you know, Rick, over the years, I've been considered an expert at political correctness. Yeah, right. Don't, 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 don't go there now. <laughs> hey, listen, that brings up an important point. Um, we may have misled uh, our listeners uh, maybe a, a six, eight, ten months ago and gave them the idea that we are somehow against PAs and NPs, and that cannot be further from the truth. I believe that they are the future of emergency medicine, but I also believe that their training needs to be uh, beefed up substantially. But I am a supporter. Uh, uh, people have thought that you know we're we're not supporters, and that's not true at all. No, in fact, I think we've probably provided as much education through these various courses and the other things that we've done. I mean, we fully believe that if the doc is the captain of this team, he's going to be careful, chief. There's some of these nurse practitioner issues in terms of independent practice. And, and if I could interrupt you just once, this has come up about supervision and we had a talk on supervision here and it's a very important issue, but you know, even if a nurse practitioner is able to independently practice, the hospital sets the threshold on supervision. It doesn't matter if a nurse practitioner is able to independently practice by law. If the hospital says that's fine, but we're going to have to, we, we we want these cases seen by a physician, or we want all cases seen by a physician as well, it's their call. You know, the the hospitals are still working their way through this. How we're going to utilize these people? I will say this. In the last year and a half, the number of cases I've seen which have involved both a mid-level provider of some kind and a physician have gone up dramatically because whenever you can get two people arguing with each other, the plaintiff has a better chance of winning the case. Yeah, we've gone over a number of those cases. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we have an email that just came through on the teletype. Woo! That's yeah, right. yeah that's, we have a teletype. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's from, what's this fellow's name? Dr. Jolly. Well, no, he's not a doctor. He's a... PA. PA, or something to that effect. And in fact, it is so hot off the press that Greg is reading it off of his um, my, smartphone my Blackberry. here. The yeah. smartphone here kind of thing. And I'm really surprised that Greg even knows how to use one. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing, isn't it? I thought he'd just talk on a damn thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
Jim uh, writes to us and says he's a little behind on his episodes and what he's listened to. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 We've right. heard that one before. Yeah. Uh, you, you heard about... <laughs> no, we don't got to do the joke. In January, he says, you discussed some of the challenges of using mid-level providers in the ED. Uh, I'm a nurse practitioner, so I have a vested interest in this topic, feeling that the ish in, in this issue, there are certain complaints that should not be seen by mid-level providers, and that the uh, triage system could help weed these out. I hope we didn't give that idea, because he asks at the end of this letter, very politely, uh, and I want to get, I, I want to quote it correctly. He says, I would appreciate your thoughts on this as to what cases should and should not be seen by mid-level providers. Additionally, based on our experience in the litigation area, he would be interested in a specific list of complaints he feels mid-levels should not see. I think we've been misquoted here, Rick. Well, did he give some examples of cases that would be triaged pretty much automatically to the more urgent care center side, like the headaches? He he did. And, and, And the problem is this. Because we've decided a case isn't minute-to-minute dying doesn't mean it isn't a potential med-legal disaster and that the patient doesn't have a serious disease. I think this idea of deciding it's a level three so it doesn't matter who sees it, you know, every subarachnoid hemorrhage comes in as a headache. Compressed um, cardiaquina come in as low back pain. There's always some disease, some risk in shuffling people there and thinking they don't, they're not sick. Well, let me ask you, when the, if you look at the totality of your uh, cases that you're reviewing, are the majority of them uh, about patients who go home or the majority about patients who get admitted? I think, I think we all know the answer <laughs> to that, Is this a setup or is, not? Yes, but, it's, we're cons- we don't worry about the patients who are admitted. We worry about the patients who go home, which are tended to be, quote, the minor cases. Right. You know, if, if you look across the United States, the, the numbers say between 15 and 20% get admitted, 80 to 85% go home, depending on the intensity. But the one that got admitted, we've already concentrated resources other physicians, the, the, uh, the wealth and, and experience of other doctors in the hospital to help solve this problem. The ones that go home, they're the ones we don't have control over. And those are the ones we lose sleep over. Right. Oh, exactly. Well, you should lose sleep over. <laughs> yes. Well, it's very interesting that at, at this course, a woman came up to me, very nice. She heard the lecture on sending people home with chest pain and uh, one marker and one EKG. Well, actually, I thought it was extraordinary the number of people who came up to us and said, you know, the abbreviated evaluations that chest pain patients are getting and going home. Yes. It's like, oh, my goodness gracious, because every one of them is not defendable. defendable. Exactly. I I mean, it's not what we're teaching the residents. It's not what we're teaching them in most places. Why they think they can do that, I don't know. In any way, his question really is, can we make a list of those cases which should not be seen by mid-levels? And my feeling is they can all be seen by mid-levels, and I want you to see them. I just want you to show me the cases. Yeah, I agree 100% with you, Greg. Um, We, in fact, asked for a show of hands about how many of the people in the audience basically were limited to the quote-unquote minor cases. 
and how many of the people in the audience were able to see all of the cases. And it was pretty much evenly split between the two. I really believe that if you want to create a lean, mean emergency medicine machine, that a mid-level, and you know, I understand the term about the political uh, nature, right? Of, I, you know, but in any case, I think if you want to create a lean, mean emergency medicine machine, you have to allow these folks to see everybody in the department, everybody. When uh, we had mid-levels, they saw everybody. But I must admit. Our policy was we would see them all too. It was even if it was a, a very brief, "Hi, how are you? I'm Dr. So and So." Just, a, just, it's thirty seconds. If it was something really pretty simple, straightforward, and simple, yeah, it, it doesn't hurt <clears throat> to do that. I know that this is not the, you know, fashionable thing to say at all, but I can tell you that we didn't do it, and I know of a group that has 60 contracts, and their policy is the same thing. They are obviously self-insured. They are obviously doing very, very well in terms of their risk management and their claims. So, you know, don't think it's so uh, nutty that that policy be adopted. The idea that 30 or 40 percent of your patients are being seen by mid-levels and no physician is involved in those cases, gives me the heebie-jeebies because none of these folks have any credentials in emergency medicine except their time in the department kind of thing. Yeah. It, it's scary. It, well, the one thing about getting somebody who's board certified in emergency medicine is we at least have some concept of what they did for three years or four years. They took a board examination. We know what their continuing education is. We're still trying to figure that out, I think, with the new providers who are entering the system. And you know, we need to work it out. There's, there is a movement to formalize the recognition of PAs and NPs in the emergency department. As yes. an example, there is now a... I, I don't know if it's what it's called, a certificate of special competence yes. or something like mm -hmm. that for PAs. And that's just been developed. One of the problems with that, honestly, and I know you know one of the people who are involved in this, is that you get to take the exam three years after working in an emergency department. <laughs> that's the and danger. it's like, you know, holy smokes. I want a, the exam before they start working in the emergency department. Right. In addition to nurse practitioners, there's a movement between ENA and um, another group to come up with some kind of uh, process to acknowledge uh, nurse practitioners who have special competence in the emergency department. However, you know, one of the problems with that is it is the creation of a portfolio of documents and time and other things like that but there's no exam the nurse practitioners have steadfastly created no recertification exams despite the fact that in organized medicine the PAs do it the doctors do it and I really think the nurse practitioners are doing themselves a disservice by not joining the rest of the medical community and saying yes we have a certifying exam and we do a recertifying exam as well and it's not an issue of i know that certain nurse practitioners only do orthopedics well it's the same way with pas but they come up with a, a general exam and they have also some special exam exam in surgery exam i think in internal medicine exam in um one other thing that that you can choose to bolt onto your research exam so that it's not all primary care. All right. Well, 
I hope we don't get a lot of letter, I hope, letters I, about this. I don't know. I know, but uh, but I hope Mr. Jolly thinks we have given him proper respect yeah, here. D- and, and, and really do care about this issue. We, don't we wanna, do care about this issue. We don't want to write a list. We think that's dangerous business, writing a list. We think so, too. Let me take give you another hot off the press. Hot off the press. This one just came in. Let me just, oh. Okay, you know, take that my, out. My mom used to work on, at a Western Union office where they would have, uh, you know, the teletype kind of thing on a, on a Oh, a long strip of paper. There was a teletype. That, I guess that that was what, it, what that was called. You know, right. There was one uh, indicating my birth. I, there was a copy of one that was sent. You know, saying it's a, it's a boy. It's a, a you know eighteen pounds or something like that kind of thing. Yeah. And it was done on these strips of paper, which I that a teletype. <laughs> the next one that was sent on that same teletype was Civil War Ends. Okay, so uh, yeah, that's we, great. we don't have to go into this. Uh, we have a, a listener, long time. We've known him well. We have not gotten permission to use his name on this, so I'm not going to yeah, use it. I think we it. have to be careful when yeah, we do that. We're not going to do that. But he is a he's a great guy and asks a great question. He's talking about Dr. Smith as opposed to Dr. Jones. So we're using uh, an alias here. Was working in the department. He took care of a patient who also is a hospital employee, who also works in the department, who also has clinical patient responsibilities. As part of this gentleman's problem, uh, we'll call him patient uh, whatever, patient X, he admitted that he does use illegal drugs to perform his uh, while he's on shift, uh, although he never gets to the point where he can't function. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now, this information is known. Known to who? To the physician who took the history. Okay. It's also known to two nurses who were in the room at the time. Oh. Now he's getting... The cat's tri- out of the bag here. Well, the point is... What is his responsibility in this state? Is he supposed to report this person? Does he have an obligation? In fact, has he violated the doctor-patient relationship? He was told this in confidence. Is there a reason now? See, because the law exempts us from certain kinds of restrictions. For example, if we find somebody with a seizure disorder, we know about reporting that. If we find a crime of violence... We are obligated under the law to report. If someone uh, has beaten their wife... And well, in California, see, you're obligated to report. Not all states require that, though. Not, not all states do. But the point is, what are we supposed to do about knowing that there is a colleague who's using drugs, has come in under the influence, is giving care... Oh, and, he is under the influence? He, well... In terms of clinically, his behavior? He is admitted that he has but said he was still fine to work. He doesn't think this is a part of his medical problem, but he was honest enough during the history and physical to admit to illegal drug use. And now we're going to turn on you. And now we're going to turn on you. What, what, what would you do, Rick? If you're the director of the department, what do you want to do? Well, I think it's a tough one. And I, actually, I've just heard about this, so I really haven't had a chance to kind of put any thoughts together on it. But... I think what you're, you know, I, I, I really, I'm struggling. I, I, do you have a, do you have Yeah, a, I have, I, you know, this is not an uncommon problem, I think. And I probably dealt 
in my years as a director maybe a dozen times with somebody who had a substance problem. I think what you have to do is, particularly if they're on the medical staff, you have to go to them and say, you're a member of this medical staff. You've agreed not to be operating or working in the department under intoxication. Well, that's a difference. That, that's d- different. This is a, you're talking now about a member of the medical staff. I thought you were talking about an employee of the department. Maybe he's a tech or something like that. What if, what if he is a nurse in that well, department? You know, I don't think that it matters, frankly, whether the drugs are licit or illicit. Right. Uh, you know, th- that doesn't matter to me. I mean, you know, alcohol is perfectly legal, and yet we know that we have to report physicians who are reporting to us who appear to be clinically intoxicated. Right. And, and if a doctor appears to be clinically intoxicated when they're coming in to see a patient, even if it's a private patient and you had nothing to do with them, you are obligated, I believe, to call the chief of staff and say, Dr. So-and-so is here. I believe he is clinically intoxicated. You need to handle this problem. But what do you do basically when it is in the confessional of the doctor-patient relationship, as you've talked about here? Very difficult, but I, I will say this. Most people in their employment agreement uh, have in there certain things they will and will not do and are fireable offenses. The question is, the physician informing, who do they inform, can they inform, and I, I don't think it's as simple as we'd like to make it out. Oh, today. I don't think, I'm baffled here. Yeah. No. And, and Give me an answer, man. Well, You're this, the answer, man. This is what I've I'm done the Ed McMahon. in my career, and I've certainly had nurses in the department who were, let's say, uh, imbibing in drugs. What I would do is pull them aside at that time and say, you look okay at this moment, but yeah, but this is the not question a patient. has been raised. That, We're going to do this. I understand what you're easy. saying. That's yeah. easy. This is a patient now who's confided in you. I know. It's not like one of the working nurses who you notice is a little slurred speech or something like right. that. Right. So what is the answer for a patient who works in the department who acknowledges? And you have what, what if you think that there's no evidence of any clinical um, problem here? I mean, there's no obvious impairment. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, exactly. Uh, After all, there are plenty of us who use uh, alcohol, but in the proper setting, at the proper levels, and don't aren't intoxicated when we work. If if you eliminated every physician who took a drink, yeah, (laughs) there'd be six of them left. Those answers, honestly, are easy. Yeah, give me the answer to this hard one. Well, I'm I'm proposing this. We throw this out to our enlightened. Listenership. Oh, you're going to punt. At this moment in time, I'm going to punt. But I think it is an interesting question. Interesting. It, you may, also, it. it may also be dependent upon state law at a certain point in time, mm. what's protected, what isn't. Uh, but let's see what our, our uh, listenership has to say about this. Uh, and, you know, we have lots of you who are attorneys uh, who have dealt with these kinds of problems. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Well, I would be interested in what HR people have to say. Not that, you know, this is, this is like the confessional. This is, was done in confidence. Are you going to turn on them and turn them in kind of thing when there's no evidence of any clinical impairment at that time? It's not quite the confessional. 
uh, you and I are allowed to release information if we think, after speaking with a patient, that there's a, a danger to that patient or someone else. Yeah, but there's no evidence of that in this case. Well, there's no evidence of that in this case. But it is an, it is an interesting dilemma, and uh, we can move on from here. But uh, Yeah, the, other, the answer is we don't know the answer. We don't know the answer. And Help we, us out here. We'd love to hear the answer because I think it's uh, very interesting stuff. Okay. Rick, what else do we need to talk about? I want to I want to do this one from uh, Charles Pennick. From make, Chuck. It brought a, a, yeah. tear, a tear to my eye. I think I might, I might have gotten something in my uh, eye. I, yeah, uh, I, th- okay. I think you just stuck the edge of the paper in your face there. Uh, let me just read it because it is, it is actually very touching. Today I started my 30th year of full-time clinical emergency medicine with five years spent in directorship. Our group rotates the position. If I could take an aside... I can't think of a nuttier way to run an ER group by rotating directors. Chuck, uh, I really have the highest regard for you. I just want to, you've just created an opportunity for me to uh, challenge this. Um, the group should be run by, I believe, the most competent person in terms of relationships with the administration, uh, relationships with uh um, you know, your building company who knows the rules and regulations. Not all people are created equal in terms of running a group and representing a group to the medical staff and the administration of a department. Don't do this. Basically, find the person who appears to be the most competent, give them a run at it, pay them extra for it because it's going to take some a work to do that. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't work out, you want the best representation you can. All right, let's finish here. During the time, during that time, I subscribed to Emergency Medical Abstracts. Yay! Obviously, a, a brilliant a doctor. A brilliant man. And now, risk management money monthly <laughs> for 27 of those years. I cannot think of any better gift, better gift in celebration of starting my 30th year than the very kind comments you made about the email I sent on the April to the April issue about the resting tachycardia issue, not able to walk out of the department, and the do-over. Yep. You have made an old ER doc very happy, especially when the thoughtful comments come from someone as distinguished. You know, obviously, he's a, he's a, uh, uh, we got a problem here. Yeah, we've got a distinguished problem. Distinguished as the two of you. Keep up the great work. Chuck, I have to tell you, this letter probably made my day. Yeah, it really did. It really did. And Chuck, even though you're only half right, I, I mean, I'm the distinguished one, but I think it's fair. I think it's very fair. Thank you very much. Yeah, we love it. You know, uh, Chuck, what are you doing work in 30 years? I mean, did you have a divorce or something go bad in the stock, the stock market here? Yep. Come on, smell the flowers, Chuck. Back off a little bit. You may love emergency medicine, but I can tell you I'm a little older than you are. And um, when I look back on uh, things, uh, there's a... It's time to smell the roses. That's just one person's opinion. Uh, I've got another. Uh, I've got another case where we cannot use the name. We're told we cannot use the name. This guy, I contacted. He's got something to hide. Yeah. He, well, no, he doesn't have something to <laughs> hide. He has something to hide. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he's a longtime listener. Basically, one of my docs had a patient with a very atypical presentation of a STEMI. He did an EKG. Had some labs done. They were kind of screwing around. Everything took longer than it should. Finally, uh, the patient was sent and transferred to a cath lab. The doctor wrote a T-sheet, and then after the patient was transferred... What kind of sheet? Don't say that. A a check-off medical record. Check-off medical record sheet. And decided that he would 
he was going to write a new sheet to cover his butt. Oh, God. Oh, God. Here we he go. He tossed the one sheet oh. in the basket and wrote another sheet. I'm getting chest pain right now. This guy knows about it. He changed his note through the original tea sheet in the trash, and he would dis- he would now de- write one that had to do that had you know showed why things were delayed. And, uh, anyway, well, you know, maybe this guy says right off the bat, he says he's lying, and he changed his history. Now the issue is what to do with him. I have the one from the trash. Uh, and the second tea sheet that was sent. How do you address this doctor? What do you think we should do? Should we discipline him? Uh, by if, if this is a medical legal case, and there's no indication that it will be, mm-hmm. um, are we in trouble for acquiescing to what went on? Well, you know, I think this is an opportunity for some serious education about the uh, seriousness of these documents and the fact that these are legal documents that are being generated that basically means that you don't have the discretion to treat them in a willy-nilly method. And this doctor basically, you know, he, he may have been well-intended kind of thing, and I don't think that he needs to be drawn and quartered over this, but I do think a serious conversation regarding telling the truth on these records, not, you know, destroying uh, uh, initial records has to happen. And um, I don't know that there's a way to monitor him because, in fact, it was by chance that it was noted that this guy did this. Right. But but uh, it's not just the doc. There's uh, someone else, a nurse, somebody else who also noted that this happened when he wrote the new slip. I would say this. After the Healthcare Quality Improvement Act of 1997, these documents are protected. They and they're protected under federal law. This is a patient who is covered under some federal government program. Have you committed fraud? You've certainly done something which is not acceptable either in the medical community or in the legal community. This doc ought to be brought in shown the two copies and say nothing like this can ever happen again because should there be a bad outcome on something which is often why charts are changed or adjusted should there be a bad outcome i don't think there's reasonable defense we can give for altering the record yeah all of these alterations are clearly self-serving yep um and there are proper ways, and we've gone over this mo- many times about how to make addendums to the, addendums to record, right. how to cross, you know, uh, deal with errors in the record, and not one. And one of the options is not putting in the record in the trash. Yes, so that's, that's one of the I options. Think that, that was in the list. All right, we're going to do another letter, and this is from a uh, another good uh, friend of ours. He's written many times. We'll just call him Jim, uh, and uh, Jim is from the. Uh, is from the Cheese State, and uh, we, we like him very be, much. Be careful now. Yeah, yeah. Um, he says he was given a policy by the hospital, handed a policy, that states all treatments defined as surgical, needing a scalpel, electrocautery, or any other means, is going to have to have a consent form in the emergency this department. This is total a, BS. I know. This is a separate form. 
We are being told that we need a signed consent form for any treatment that requires conscious sedation, uh, any treatment that involves insertion of a needle. Um, Is that like drawing blood? I have no idea. Is that insertion of a needle? Yeah. All we can can tell our friend is this. Oh, God. You've signed a general consent to the emergency department. No, the patients have. Well, the patient has signed this for you. And basically, if if you're doing an elective procedure, taking out their tonsils, yes, I would understand why there would be a separate sit down and a separate surgical consent. But do you realize... There's probably more danger or harm in doing a blood gas, sticking an artery, than there is in doing a spinal tap. How are you going to decide which one of these needs a separate signed consent? Well, obviously, the lawyers have gotten involved here, and something must weird must have triggered this, you know, one-size-fits-all kind of thing. This is horrible. Um, there is no reason to do this. The standard of care does not in any way require this. No hospital does this. This is atypical. Why would there a person comes in with the laceration, they intended to be fixed up in some way. And if you say, I'm going to stitch it up, and they lay there and let you put the lidocaine in and sit, stitch it up, that is passive uh, 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 agreement. Acquiescence. Acquiescence to the procedure. You know, what is that case? Uh, tell me about the case on the ship. That's the came. O'Brien versus the Cunard line case, yeah, 1933. Please tell me about that. Uh, 1933 for crying out loud. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, O'Brien uh, got in line with everybody else on one of the Cunard line liners, and because they were going to land in an area that had yellow fever, they were all getting yellow fever shots. He stood in line with everybody else. When he got to the point where he was going to get his shot, he fainted, and he did fall and cut his face and a few things, and he sued the Cunard line, saying, you didn't have my permission. Well, the judge in this case tossed this at a point because what he said should be repeated. You got in line with everybody else. You saw everybody in front of you getting a shot. What did you think was going to happen to you, fool? You were going to get a shot, too. You could have stepped out of line. You could have done a lot of things. So I think that this can be taken to the point of craziness. This, but- has, this is totally crazy, crazy policy. And this is generated by some lawyers trying to cover the butt of the hospital. But this is not the way to do this. Yep. You know, sometimes malpractice insurance companies uh, get the, this same kind of thing where they think that they will be more protected if they get permissions uh, signed for all of these routine procedures. Yep. And in fact... One of the things that's kind of nutty in hospitals is that some hospitals have people sign, sign consents for spinal taps. I mean, why would you require a spinal tap when you can intubate somebody without, you know, without their permission kind of thing? It's like it, it is nutty. And yeah, it, don't, don't acquiesce to this. Find out what triggered this kind of thing and, and fight it because it's going to take you a lot of time to do a proper consent because a proper consent basically requires that you tell them the alternatives instead of stitching you up we can give you steristers but that won't be a good or we can do nothing and then there'll be a big scar you have to tell them the alternatives you're very intelligent on this issue rick and i'm glad you are because he wrote in the letter we didn't read this whole thing he said this question is mainly for greg when you wrote back to him you said <laughs> mainly for greg what am I? Chopped liver? <laughs> so, so 
you're getting a, a, a unified approach here. Uh, doctor, do I, do I get a pat on the head? You get head, a pat on the head, head for, for this. That. You did it very, very, and you remembered O'Brien versus Cunard lines, which I thought was extremely impressive. I don't know that, honestly, <clears throat> our advice in this is going to change the policy because this is an irrational policy, and so it's hard to be reasonable with an irrational policy. Did I mention the? Um, I think I mentioned maybe on one of the more recent recordings. I mean, you know, I'm getting a little senile. On these you cards. are. The, this um, hospital group, I think it's a chain of uh, 16 hospitals, and they spent about almost $100,000. We talked about this on, on, on one of the recent shows, yes. On the, um, on the, they sent a patient on a transfer by car. Yes. And the initial people investigating thought that this was an Abtala violation, and so they brought in the feds, and the feds basically had to be convinced by the hospital that it wasn't. And uh, they spent eighty or $90,000 in the process. And then they made the stupid decision that every one of their transfers would be by ambulance in the 16 hospitals. This is typical of, you know, how lawyers operate and how people want to cover their butt inappropriately. And this is another example, another example. Yeah. All right, newsflash. Newsflash, we've got to cover something now which is important. This is from the appellate court in the state of Michigan, which I do monitor. Uh, this is Trondeau versus Hans, Michigan Court of Appeals case. Uh, for those interested in looking it up, it's number 300026. Is that the license plate number? No, it's not their license plate number, but it's a recent decision, March. This has the causation theory offered by plaintiff's experts was rationally derived from a sound foundation. Thus, it did not preclude the expert's testimony. What happened is one of the experts who gave an opinion in this case was bizarre. And so under Michigan law, you know, the judge kind of tossed this saying, you know, this doesn't make a lot of sense here. They went to the appellate court and somebody up there said, well, it sort of kind of makes sense, and you could extrapolate this. You know, this is the wrong direction for the courts in, the, in this particular state, in my state, Michigan, to take, which is to say, we're going to kind of do away with this science thing. And, and uh, we've mentioned many times on this program uh, the Daubert challenge question, Daubert versus Merrill Dow, scientific value. All I can say is in the state of Michigan, there's going to, this will be appealed to the Supreme Court, uh, the medical society is going to have to do this because what they basically said is this could become a field day for for. Bullshit. So what are you saying that is that wacky opinions are allowed to be accepted in court and, and are not able to be ejected as by the judge as, huh? Yeah, basically what they've said is, well, it could be well, maybe. Let me ask kinda. you, aren't these opinions supposedly those of experts expert witnesses kind of thing who have supposedly credentials that makes them clear that it's an expert so what on what authority would a judge have to exclude testimony of a supposed expert on what authority well uh, at the at the primary level here the the um defense brought in a huge amount of literature and said there's nothing they have nothing that would defend what this guy had to say and so the judge did say, yeah, I mean, this isn't 
defensible scientifically. So basically, it was challenged by the other side. This nutty testimony was challenged by the other by, side. By the defense. And uh, But, you know, if, if this was a jury trial, it would seem that the case is being made by the defense that this guy gave nutty testimony, and he, they convinced the jury that this is truly nutty testimony. Didn't it, go that far, Rick. This was thrown out by the judge before they actually had the trial. And so this is this is an interesting question as to what we're going to get let into well, you science. Know, honestly, we hear more and more about people giving really bad testimony um, on the part, typically, of the patients who are suing. But it's not totally limited to them. I'm no. sure that there is some awfully nutty testimony given in support of doctors' behavior as well. Right. There's, oh, there's two sides of this coin. No, no, no question. But I'll tell you, uh, I was just involved in a large trial in New Jersey, and uh, the, the, some of the testimony from people who are, have MD, F-A-C-E-P after their name was absolutely despicable. Uh, and I think that we should not be afraid of raising that issue at the Ethics Committee at ASAP. Well, yeah, but in all candor, you probably didn't turn this guy in. In all candor, I don't have standing. I'm not the aggrieved party. But the doctor who was, you know, by the way, we won the case. The doctor got off. I've informed him who to contact, how it should be done. I told him I would go at my expense, I'm happy to fly down there and testify about what was done. Because I think at some point in time, there are people floating around. Well, we, we know who don't, that. don't know the literature. We know that. Yeah. And actually, I kind of view it as an obligation in the specialty to identify these doctors who are doing this egregious testimony and at least let ASAP take a look at it and potentially sanction them. Obviously, the sanctions don't mean very much because, you know, those physicians can continue to do testimony and say, well, I was sanctioned by ASEP because I took the, you know, I was defending a plaintiff and they're right, basically, right. you know, they're picking on me. Want to do some cases, Rick? I thought we just did a case. Well, let's do another case. <laughs> All right. You'll like this one. Oh, will I? Oh, yeah. And, and again, um, ladies and gentlemen, we, we don't, I've avoided using people's names on these cases. But those are closed claims. But the fact of the matter is, claims. if you want to hear about the, the citation and verse, we could put it into the written version of this thing. We can. Here's a very interesting case. We always think that, oh, problems with hospitals and care, things like this happens in Keokuk and, and all these other places, small places. I've got two of them for you from big institutions. Uh, one of them is, is uh, let me just get this out here, the University of Chicago Medical Center. That's a pretty big place. I assume it? so. Yeah, yes, it is a big one. This had to do with an elderly woman uh, who uh, suffered quadriplegia. Um, That's and not good. This, she's elderly, so she didn't have long to, you know, crawl on all fours. But in any event... Uh, the decision here was a $2 million decision against uh, the docs and the hospital. This had to do with a central venous catheter placed in the carotid artery instead of the jugular vein. A lot of questions raised, like, 
why did they why did she need a central line? You realize most central lines can't be defended, Rick? Yeah, was this a ER case kind of thing? Uh, well, this was actually the the medicine resident mm-hmm. who needed practice in putting oh, in no. a, a line. You know, it's really if if you've been a subscriber to the abstracts, which obviously I hope you have been, the literature on the value of central lines is is just very, very straightforward. There is an increased in morbidity and mortality in patients who have central lines compared to those who don't, who have the same same problems. And, and particularly in those cases where they're doing pulmonary capillary wedge pressure monitoring. And this is a great example of physiology gone bad when they say, okay, we're going to do our fluids based on pulmonary capillary wedge pressures. And that will be a very scientific way to do it. And those studies that looked at that, that pulmonary capillary wedge pressure thing basically found out that the patients did worse than those who did not have this. Yep. Now, honestly, to be fair, that's not the same as a central line. Exactly. It's not the same, but I think the principle is there. If there's no other way to get access, we understand it. But when you have other ways of getting venous access, ask yourself, what number do you need to derive from that central catheter? You know, it's really interesting because I remember at an emergency department near us that they would do central lines multiple times a day. Now, it was a busy place. I acknowledge that. But now you can count on one hand, you know, how many central lines get placed in a month or two in the typical emergency department. That kind of has largely fallen out of favor. And we also have this, now we have this, these bone drills. Yeah. Zip, zip. yeah, yeah you yep. know, the Black & Decker thing that you just zip into somebody's tibia or something like that if you need to get fluids or drugs in. Yes, I, I, I see you're obviously facile with all the fighter points here. <laughs> Black Rick, and Decker is of the, the Black & Decker, <laughs> exactly. No, let me ask you a question. Uh, is there a standard of care problem here? Because is it appropriate to do uh, some kind of test to see if your central line is where it's supposed to be? Don't you think it probably would be a little abnormal in the carotid artery in terms of what the hell's coming out of well, the thing? Anytime I've hit an artery in my career, it looks red. Well, maybe this person was in such bad shape that they couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, I don't know whether that's defended. And, and the, the other question is: Is a first year be is there somebody there actually supervising them? When this catheter is put in, how many had they done? All that sort of thing. And, you know, really, I think the clinical indications are really important. Yeah, absolutely. If it's not justified, it doesn't, you can't train on people doing procedures when they're not justified. Yep. I I don't want to beat this horse to death, but we have another case here of a failure to diagnose cauda equina syndrome during the third emergency department visit. I happen to be... Uh, give a half-hour talk today. I heard it as a matter of fact. On the red flags of back pain. Yes. And cauda is one of the red flags of back pain. Mm-hmm. Sudden increase in back pain with difficulties in terms of urination. You re- you're retaining urine. You kind of your anal sphincter tone gets less, and you have sudden increase in pain and neurologic symptoms shooting down the legs. You know cancers. Uh, central discs, um, infections, 
those kinds of things can compress the cord. These, not the cord. <coughs> the cord ends at L1, L2. This is the spinal nerves that are running in the cord get compressed by this situation. The this tail the, of the horse. The right. cauda equina. This right. is a neurosurgical emergency. Yes. Yes. Well, that's <laughs> that's what the law thought, too. Uh, and, and actually... Uh, one of the principal reasons for malpractice suits is malpractice. Is malpractice. I think. That, I think honestly, it's probably the principal reason. Well, it's it's certainly one of them. Um, <clears throat> let's look at an emergency department case, again from a major university center that we've already mentioned on this program. Oh, two for two. Two for two. This is a two for. Congratulations. And so they lost two million on that one. They only lost. Four, they lost four million on this one. And, and <laughs> not a good, not no, a good week. I, no, but I think we ought to look at the facts of this case because this is this is, uh, and I'm happy to give it uh, Salter, uh, etc. Versus the University of Chicago Medical Center, Cook County. Cook County is not a place to try cases if you can avoid it. It's, it's almost like Detroit. Uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Detroit. Yes, yeah, except Detroit doesn't exist anymore because they. Uh, declared bankruptcy yesterday. Did you know that, Rick? No, I didn't know Yes, that. they did. Let me give you the case. This is a young woman who suffered a shunt malformation, but surgery was not performed properly. Now, this is a young woman who has a Hakeem valve, a shunt, from, her, from the ventricles of her brain that goes down into her tummy. Does that sound to you like if she comes in with bad headache, they ought to work her up? Well, the uh, the supposition is that that shunt is blocked, and this patient has an increase in intracranial pressure with headache, nausea, you know, lethargy, maybe kind of getting getting out of it, kind of thing. And there's this pumping chamber that is supposedly somewhere on your scalp where you pre- compress that little sucker, and if it doesn't go in, it kind of, kind of helps confirm that you got a blocked up shunt. As an infant, she had undergone placement of this uh, valve and shunt. To get rid of the, uh, uh, to drain the excess fluid from her brain into the tummy. She comes in. Do the emergency doctors do the right thing? Absolutely. Now, well, what's her problem? Why is she coming to the ER? Headache and decreased mentation. Oh, okay. okay. All right. I got it. That's okay. reasonable. The day, uh, and while she's there, the emergency department, who do they call? Neurosurgery. They said we're kind of backed up. Somehow... This woman sitting in the emergency department for a day and a half. Oh, great. Going down. The story gets worse, Rick. The story gets worse. And that intracranial pressure on her brain increased and she arrested. That's pretty bad. Rick, she's (laughs) in the department for almost two Honest days. Honest goodness, they need to sue their, that hospital bad, and they need to win big time. Well, the, see, the problem is, so now you've called the, the first-year resident in neurosurgery or second year and said... This is an emergency. That's what I think. In fact, if I was the ER doc, I'd say, if you can't take care of it, I'll put them in an ambulance center in Northwestern. Do something. Defend the patient. Do something. Anyway, this is a $4 million decision, and you know what? They deserved it. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I have no idea why this person sat there for two damn days. This is no good. This, no, this, this isn't is, right. No, this is not right. And it, it, it honestly it appears pretty obvious that this is not right. Yeah. You know, I, I um, I give the talk in the board review course, which also is happening uh, at this at this time. Yeah. If you're taking your board uh, 
exams. Well, by the time you hear this, it's too late. But in any case, um, this is a, an emergency. So I ask in the audience how many people have put a needle into this pumping chamber when they cannot um, compress it. Um, and, and you know, you see a few hands go up. This is a life-saving event. And Ken Soji, who was a mutual friend yes. of ours, acknowledged that he had done this. These And the pressure, this stuff squirts out across the room when you do this kind of thing. And um, to not be able to address this, even by... You know, ER docs can do this kind of thing when they're going downhill and and you're in a in a university and you can't get a neurosurgery somebody to come down. Come on now. Yep. This is this isn't good. And so so this is not their month here on risk management. Well, you know, it's interesting. If if that case had happened in California, yeah. Um, it would never have gone to trial because it, once the patient dies then there's a $250,000 limit on pain and suffering. And right. so um, this is one of the, honestly, one of the problems of having a 20-year cap on pain and suffering that has never changed. Right. And I think, honestly, $250,000 is a joke. So a lot of people who have valid claims, their cases never, nobody takes their cases. Because it's not worth taking. Exactly. In time. Uh, okay, let's do another one. And then we can um, we can um, go to lunch. Go to lunch. <laughs> no, no. We got to do another case though, and it's a neuro case. Teenager comes to an emergency room and doesn't speak. She's brought in. That's great, isn't it? What? Well, of course. What's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, never <laughs> happened with my kids. But let me just tell you. And by the way, my seven-year-old granddaughter now has become so verbal and so. Oh God. Oh my God. It it it's you know. And now she says to me. FYI, Doc, <laughs> when she wants to give me information. Oh, God. Or she'll put her hand up and say, don't speak, you're destroying or, or, or you're ruining my moment. And I have to put this up with this. This is a seven-year-old? Seven-year-old. And I said to her, do you understand the term disinherited? <laughs> and so we had that you know, discussion. Uh, well, my two-year-old, it's their ability to speak at between two and three is logarithmic. Yes. It yes. is un- incredible to watch day to day. And these little girls, when they get to be three or and above, they're just constant chatterboxes. And I, my poor son and his wife are going to have to endure this. And your seven-year-old, oh God, yeah, to be being scolded by a seven-year-old. She's so verbal and so theatrical, and we have no idea where it comes from. We just have oh, no yeah, idea right. yeah, where this no, comes yeah, from. Yeah, I'm sure. All right, let's take another case. Uh, this is one that is very hard to understand. A teenage girl is brought to the emergency department again, and she didn't speak. Now, nobody knows why she didn't speak, and they're examining her. I don't think the emergency... And by the way, this is in a place called Long Beach Memorial Medical Center. Really? Yes. Christmas Eve 2009. Los Angeles? It's the only Long Beach I know of. This is a California well, case. I know all the ER doctors there. Well, it's all true. of them. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. Um, I completed my residency in emergency medicine in 1975. Mm-hmm. We got the ER contract at Valley Presbyterian Hospital. It was the first hospital in the country to have all residency trained emergency physicians. And over time, you know, the next year or two, some of our, um, some of our, oh Jesus. I know her very well. In any case, 
we over over time some of our doctors were able to get other ER contracts like uh, Ron Kroll got down at the community hospital uh, and Dan Whitcraft got Long Beach Memorial yes. which is a flagship hospital you and I know Dan and I- and unfortunately Dan was in my class. Dan had a pre, you know very premature death. Right. But I've been there. I know those people. I know these doctors. I know that they're good people too. These are all I'm saying these is these are all the cream of the cream. Okay. Cream of the young crop. woman comes in, teenager. They claim that the physical exam and neuro exams are normal. Uh, well, she was brought in after she was found on the bathroom floor at home unconscious. They bring her in. And she, quote unquote, won't talk. Is she awake now? She's awake but won't talk, and f- and she's ne- she has no psychiatric history. Has never done this before, and it was it was considered a diagnosis. Uh, see, the neck they they, they they called it a conversion reaction. The diagnosis of exclusion. And given instructions to return. If she refuses to cooperate with speaking. Oh, my God. What did she have, Rick? Uh, to tell you the truth, I don't know what she, she had. She has a dissection uh, and a stroke. Well, they say her neuro exam is normal. That, well, that's what was claimed. However, I just think that if a patient is found unconscious by the family, no history of this. I mean, after all, let me ask you Whatever she has, she can't go home. Well, <laughs> she did. And by the way... Uh, it didn't turn out well, and uh, there are, there were several doctors involved. Some people got uh, a defense verdict, but there was a large settlement made with others in this case. You know, it's easy, honestly, for us to be Monday morning quarterback. Of course. These doctors down there are smart doctors. The doctor actually involved in this case has been practicing 25 years at at, at a minimum, and this is a large-volume hospital. It's a trauma center. So... We are Monday morning quarterbacks. It's re- easy, easy for us to criticize when it appears so obvious in this distillate here. But obviously, there are other factors involved in these cases. But on the face of it, to send a patient who doesn't speak home, who was found on the floor of the bathroom, is, uh, you know, I just don't understand why anybody would do that. I, why would you take the risk? A hospital is for people to be coming into. That's how they make money. Mm-hmm. Want to do another case just to keep us keep the flow going? Here? Absolutely. Uh, do we I'm have watching time? my watch. Yes, we do. Because we have about ten minutes. Ten minutes. Can you do a ten minute well, case? Well, I, I better be very, very selective uh, then, <clears throat> as as I'm as I'm looking at all of these things. Maybe fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes. Oh, okay. Well, we we can do some good cases then. This was a case that uh, that uh, failure to provide two days of anticoagulant prescriptions to a woman who suffered injury while visiting Poland three weeks earlier. Deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolus developed uh, before the visit with the orthopedist, and a filter, a Greenfield filter, had to be inserted. And uh, the woman was hospitalized for two weeks. Now, what's the ER issues here? Well, the ER issue is, did they give, you know, they said, well, you know, you may, maybe you've got a DVT, maybe you don't sort of thing, but we're sending you to see this orthopod. She went out and then had a what? A pulmonary embolus 
Uh, Orthopedists do, don't treat uh, uh, DVTs. Well, do she they? had some leg problem as well. In any event, she went out. She was not put on any prophylaxis, although they did claim they thought that uh, but the fact that she didn't, they didn't find the DVT at that time meant that that wasn't the reason for her leg pain. In any event, this is a strange claim that we should be putting these people on a, a uh, an anti coagulant well you wouldn't put somebody on an anticoagulant because you're not sure if they have a, a dvt or not and depending on where that dvt is supposedly located there is some controversy of if it's in the calf or not or if it's in the thigh or not and honestly you know i the distillate of this calf stuff is i think you ought to treat them there, I don't think people are going to argue about thigh uh, DVT. And one of the things about calf DVT is if you don't want to treat them, you know, you might want to serially determine by ultrasound whether this is there's any progression. I don't like that strategy because by the time you noted progression, the, the, the big problem may have already occurred. It may have been too late. Want to know the good news, Rick? This was a defense verdict. They said that the, the, they basically they said no, this wasn't the standard of care, and that they they couldn't pick the thing up, and because she had a, a problem after that, well, that the ER docs cannot be held liable. That, that, this for that. because it's a defense verdict doesn't mean it's the right thing to well, do. Well, I understand, Here, but let's let's give out some good news. I mean, we got people listening here. They're gonna they're they're they're, they're gonna jump off a bridge or something, and 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 that's bad. Got another case which, which um, it's only a $1.75 million case. Is it a, a seven-minute case? Yes, we can do this. Patient who was uh, acting out, disruptive, as it were, a psych patient, they decided they would strap him into his bed, uh, and they put a veil over the bed. They put a sheet of some kind over the bed because he was spitting and yelling. They thought that would help calm him down. Well, he's got this on under this veil, and, and it, the claim is, of course, he can't be seen. He gets his head around, uh, falls over, pulls the cot over, and, and he's got a skull fracture, a subdural hematoma, cerebellar sw- swelling, which leads to loss of quote-unquote uh, executive function course, and death. Well, I have no idea if, if he's lost uh, consortium <laughs> or not. Not going to ask the question. He died? Uh, worse than that. Worse than that. Oh, he lived. He lived. And he was crippled. Yes, exactly. So this patient, let me get this straight. So this patient is kind of berserking kind of thing, psychiatric yes. kind of thing. They put this, I don't know what the what this veil's got anything to do with, but bottom line is he pulled the gurney over and he hit, hit his head on the floor and the gurney was probably on top of him. Yes. So there would have to be some questions about the uh, appropriateness uh, and, and technical adequacy of this restraint, restraint process, number one. Did he need restraint? Could chemical restraints have been a safer uh, thing to do than to physically put these straps on him while he's still going berserko? I mean, my point of view on this is they need to hound all blow dart in these cases. Yes. Well, in any event, in this particular case, the problem was, this is the plaintiff's argument, which isn't a bad argument. When they put these this very unusual veil up tent. around him, tent, uh, nobody could see what he was doing. And there were no other 
methods used to try and restrain this patient. And so what happened was uh, he was able to position himself, as we're all aware, these people are not going to be helpful. And there was no visual clues, obviously, as they're kind of walking by as to what's going on. This isn't, this isn't a good case. And it basically, I think it brings up the fact that if you restrain anybody, uh, oh, and they didn't follow their own policy on reevaluation of the Well, patient. yeah, th- there's all kinds of laws about what you have to do in a restrained patient case right. that are not related to hospital policy. They are above hospital policy. Their feds or CMS or somebody is going to come in. The Joint Commission wants to know your restraint policy, mm-hmm. and, 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 and an integral part of the restraint policy is the ability to observe the patient. Absolutely. And, and uh, the fact that when they say in the policy they should have provided reevaluation, recheck. That's the hospital's own policy that the nurse should have looked at the patient. Right or no, where's the note? Where's every every half hour or something like that? No, no, it didn't happen. And that's what they got them on was not following their own policy. I can't can't tell people enough how often that happens. Yes, one of the reasons is, is nobody knows the policy. It's in some big manual someplace. And well, every nurse, and then you have the travelers who are coming in who don't know nothing, nothing about your department. Right. And they, what do they know about the policy? We don't know. We don't know anything know about no, this. We know nothing. All right. I've got plenty of more cases, but I don't think we have any many any more time. Do no, we? we don't have time. So, do you have a, a wine that you want to talk yes, about? Yes, I do. I, well, I want to I want to back up something you've said for years. You and I have have uh, essentially said California makes as good a wine as any place in the world well we're not the only ones who think this uh, I, listen I, I i haven't said that i don't drink wine okay i drink wine and and i i, I think I, it's probably true it's excellent if if you look at some current competitions which have gone on including yes, right. a huge one in china China. Uh, well, the Ch- Chinese are very big on wine now because they have the money to buy the expensive stuff. Well, actually, stuff. it's interesting. I just saw, read a story about China buying a big piece of a winery in the either Napa or Mendocino. Yep, yep. Well, the bottom line is... Uh, Along with the pork, fac- pork factory that they bought. If you look at, at the two big wine magazines in the United States, which is, of course, uh, Wine Advocate and then the wine spectator, they don't always agree. But they agreed this time, and they think the Chinese did it right when they awarded them the award. They said Schrader, and I know on this show we, are, we, we fell under the influence of Mel, who wanted to get you know drunk for less kind of thing, uh, and we only talked about cheap wines. But Schrader has, I think, and of course they're Napa Valley, their 2005 Cabernet Sauvignon, the, the Beckstoffer uh, Toe Callan uh, Vineyard, which is a side vineyard, Oakville, was, has essentially been rated a 99. It was better than the French big names. And they 99. said... 99? How many 90, 99s are there in this world? Not very many. And, and the great 98s. Now, this stuff isn't cheap. You got to bring like five hundred bucks for the bottle, but you know, in the in the upper level of wine, that's not unusual. What's unusual is there are four great French wines sitting there: a Latour, a Lafitte, a Houbrion. 
all these things are there. And here's Schrader from California. Kicked their the butt. Winner. Kicked their butt. And I thought, this is good. This is really good. You know, we're number one in something. <laughs> and and, uh, and and when the Chinese actually said, yeah, where, where are we going to buy our expensive wine? This stuff in California just shot up in price. These people, they can't make the stuff fast enough. And they're, they're what we say, happy people. So there, Mr. France. Yeah, yeah. So take that. And, and Spe- uh, Speaking of 99, this has got nothing to do with wine. But um, I got a ride recently in a Tesla Model S. This is the car made by, um, what's that guy's name? Oh, geez, now. He's, he sends the rockets uh, to the, yeah, yeah, to the yeah. moon. And he, and um, if Brandon, you, right. So th- this, this rocket ship like, is a car, is extraordinary. And it, and it got a 99 rating on um, Motor Week or whoever does these kind of motor yeah. trend or anything like that. Yeah. So if you have $100,000 uh, hanging around and you want to buy a rocket ship that is extraordinary. Pure electric, right? It is pure electric. It has a range of about 220 miles. Right. They're putting in all of these charging stations around the country so that you can go between here and there. Uh, if you have $100,000 around, this is an extraordinary, extraordinary car. Anyway, that is the September issue of Risk Management Monthly. Greg, I want to thank you for doing this, but I also want to thank you for coming here to Las Vegas and doing this course with us. My pleasure. Uh, uh, you know, how can you have it better than this? You get to, you know, have a good time on Rick Bucata's money. I've been doing it for years. <laughs> so this is Greg Henry. And Rick Bucata. Saying goodbye on Risk Management Monthly. Bye for now. <laughs>